What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. So far in our study of Genesis, we've covered the first 24 chapters, and uh, we started with the first 11 chapters, which covered over 2,000 years of history, and we looked at four major events, creation, the fall, the flood, and the separation of nations there at the Tower of Babel, and then all of a sudden things kind of slowed down, and we went to focus on four specific individuals, Abraham, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, and his great-grandson, Joseph. And so we've been focusing on the life of Abraham for a while now. Tonight we're coming to the conclusion of his life. But in chapter 21, the start of Isaac's life uh, was there, and we've seen some different things about Isaac, especially as he's a picture of Jesus. And so not only are we going to end the life of Abraham tonight, we're also going to start the life of Jacob, Abraham's uh, grandson. And so we're going to see some important things about that. And so chapter 25, starting in verse 1, says this, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Leshem, Lehem, and the sons of Midian were Ephar, Epher, Hanok, Abadah, and Eldah. And these were the children of Keturah. So after Abraham dies, he decides to get married again. This is a perfectly fine thing that we see biblically. There's nothing wrong with uh, remarriage after your spouse dies. And he marries a woman by the name of Keturah. And something amazing happens. And the reason it's amazing is because now he is quite old. He was very old when he and Sarah had Isaac. How old was he? A hundred years old. Well, now he is a hundred and forty years old because last chapter we saw that Isaac was forty years old when he got married. And so now Abraham's a hundred and forty and he decides to take a new wife. And notice what happens. He has six sons with this woman. And so this is something that's amazing. Really, it's miraculous because remember, when God says you're going to have a son, you think, I'm a hundred years old. I mean, surely a man of my age can't have a child, but God does something miraculous. It enables him to have Isaac, but that miracle continues. You know, what God did in the body of Abraham not only enabled him to have Isaac, but now as he remarries and he has six children with Keturah. Uh, and so this is something that's just quite amazing. And um, when we look at Abraham's life, we so often look at his faith. But really, I think the main thing we should be looking at is the faithfulness of God towards him. A great verse that I think would kind of summarize the life of Abraham and our life as well is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, which says, 
If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Yeah, this is one of my favorite verses because it shows that the faithfulness of God is not determined by my faithfulness. Even when I am faithless, he has to remain faithful is what this verse is saying because he can't deny who he is. Since God is faithful, that's part of his character, that's part of who he is, he can never not be faithful. So even when I'm not faithful, God will remain faithful because that's who God is. And we've clearly seen this in the life of Abraham. Over and over again, we've seen Abraham being faithless. From the start of God's calling all the way to now, there's been a lot of faithlessness. Abraham, I want you to go to the promised land and only take your wife. He takes his father. He takes Lot. He doesn't go to the promised land. He was faithless. Finally, when he gets to the promised land, there's a famine, and he leaves. He was faithless. He goes to Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, he lies and says, hey, this is my sister instead of my wife. He was faithless. Oh, you know what? It's taken too long. Why don't I sleep with Hagar? He was faithless. There's all sorts of different things that we've seen, a faithlessness in Abraham, but you know what? It never changed God's faithfulness to him. God was faithful all throughout, and did what he promised he would do to Abraham. And this genealogy just kind of reminds us of that. It's another instance of God's faithfulness to Abraham because he has these six sons, and we're also told of grandsons and great-grandsons that came from these sons. But if you remember back in chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, God told this to Abraham. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations, plural, of you, and kings shall come from you. Remember, God didn't just say, I'm just going to make you a nation. Isaac, there's going to be a nation. He says, no, no, I'm going to make you many nations. There's going to be more than just one. And that was a promise that was given to Abraham. And now we see this problem, uh, not problem, promise uh, fulfilled. He not only has Isaac and his descendants, which will ultimately be the nation of Israel, he has many more nations from these six sons that he was able to have with Keturah. So once again, we just see God's faithfulness in the life of Abraham. But now he's at an age where he is really close to death. He realizes this. And as often happens when you get older, you start to think about, all right, I need to get my affairs in order. I need to make sure I have my will. I need to make sure I know who I'm giving my stuff to. Uh, and so Abraham's at this point where who's going to inherit, uh, inherit all I have? Remember, he has a lot. And so who's he going to give this to? Who's he going to pass on his stuff to? Because he doesn't just have Isaac. He has eight sons, six with Keturah, one with Isaac with Sarah, and he also has Ishmael with Hagar. And so who is he going to pass on his inheritance to? And he's got to make this decision, and that's what we see him do here in verses 5 and 6. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but he gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. Abraham knew something very important. There was one promised child, and that was Isaac. You know, Ishmael, as we already know, that was the child of the flesh. But these other six sons, they weren't the child of the flesh. They were just natural-born children to his wife. But they weren't the mirror child. They weren't the promised child. They weren't the one that God made the promise to. That was specifically to Isaac. And Isaac is also the firstborn, uh, the firstborn that is the legitimate heir of Sarah. 
And so in both regards, Isaac would have gotten the majority of the inheritance, but Abraham decides, you know what, I'm going to give him everything I have. The promise is through him. God's going to bless him. All that God has given me, I am giving to him. But I'm also going to take care of my other sons. Uh, I'm going to give gifts to all of them. And I'm sure there were you know, significant gifts that he gave to his other sons to make sure that they were taken care of as well. And we're told something here that has kind of confused some people as they've read this. Notice we're told Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, plural. Well, the only concubine that we know of for sure in the book of Genesis is Hagar. Uh, Hagar was clearly a concubine that he had Ishmael with. So why does it say concubines, plural? Uh, Well, if you look in other portions of the scripture, you will see that Keturah is not only referred to as a wife, she's also referred to as a concubine. And that's where people have kind of said, like, well, then what is she? But different scholars of the Hebrew language said, you know, this is not something that was uncommon for someone who is a second wife, whether there is a plural, you know, someone has actually more than one wife, or the second wife being the first one died and the husband remarried, that it was often referred to as wife and concubine, showing that she has a different status. She's not the first wife, but she's the second wife. And so it's not saying, well, she's your wife here and she's your concubine here. It's just making the reality that Keturah is not the first wife. Um, and in regard to God's covenant promise to Abraham, she's not on the same level as Sarah because God made the promise from Abraham to Sarah and their offering, not Abraham and Keturah and their offspring. And so she is his wife, but she is the second wife, and he gives gifts to the six sons he had with her and most likely gave a gift to um, Ishmael as well. But notice Abraham does something else. He doesn't just give gifts to his sons. He sends them eastward. Now, now Ishmael's already gone. He already sent him away. So it's Isaac and these six sons dwelling in the same place. And he takes these six sons and he sends them to the east. Why? Because he recognizes the promise of the promised land is to Isaac and his descendants. And he doesn't want all these other descendants there. He's like, all right, you guys go elsewhere because the promised land is given to Isaac And Abraham is protecting Isaac. He's watching out for him. While he's still alive, I'm going to send these people away. Because when I'm dead, there's no one who's going to force him to go. So while I'm alive, I'm going to make sure they go eastward so that Isaac has the promised land and his descendants have the promised land all to themselves because that is who God has given it to. And ultimately, we see uh, Abraham is just being faithful. When he sent away Ishmael, it was hard for him. I think it was hard for him to send away these sons, but ultimately he's saying, you know what, God, you've made this promise. You've told me what's going to happen. And so I want to be faithful to what you have said. And so I'm going to send my other sons away so that Isaac can be in the promised land alone with his descendants. Well, now we're going to come to the end of Abraham's life. Let's see what we see here in verses seven and eight. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a great old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. So Abraham definitely lives a good old age. He lives for 175 years, and that was still a significant long life. We have the lifespan has drastically dropped since the time of the flood, and Abraham is still living longer than most, and the lifespan is going to get down soon to about 70, uh, which is similar to what we have today. But Abraham lived a long life. And it's interesting, the phrase here translated full of years, because it says 
you know, yeah, he was good old age, but full of years is not really so much of quantity, but quality of life. The word full here means to be satisfied, abounding. So not only was he old in 175 years, but he lived a full life in the sense of the life that he lived was a satisfied, full, blessed life from God. And once again, this is another fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. It's an example of what God said that he was going to do. Many years before this, he promised Abraham, and here's another promise, Genesis chapter 15, verse 15, God says, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. So what God said came to pass. He was faithful to fulfill what he promised Abraham. He surely did go to his fathers at a good old age. Adam Clark says this, While you admire Abraham, do not forget the God that made him so great, so good, and so useful. Even Abraham had nothing but what he had received. From the free, unmerited mercy of God proceeded all of his excellences. But he was a worker together with God, and therefore did not receive the grace of God in vain. Go thou, believe, love, obey, and persevere in like manner. As we look at Abraham's life, and I know as a younger believer, I did this, and I did this with many other characters in Scripture, and just saw, wow, they're so amazing. Look what they did. Look what they accomplished for God. And kind of missed really the bigger point. Look what God was able to do in them. Really, the the main character isn't them. The main character is God, who's able to use someone like Abraham and do so much with him. And so as we look at his life, let's remember the big God that Abraham served, which was able to do big things in Abraham's life. God took a faithless and disobedient man and turned him into a great man of faith and obedience. And the encouraging thing of his life is God can do that for us. You look at where he started to where he went. You look at his faithlessness and disobedience to the fact that he got to a place where he was willing to sacrifice his own son, and we recognize the work that God has done to change Abraham. And it brings us to the first point I want you to take note of tonight here in chapter 25. God is faithful even when we are faithless, and he wants to change us to become faithful and obedient to him. You know, oftentimes we don't believe that. We look at the faithfulness in our present or the faithlessness in our past. We look at the disobedience in our present or the disobedience in our past, and we think, you know what? God can never do in and through me like he did through an Abraham or a Sarah or a David or whoever that biblical character we're looking at. And we think, you know, look at my past or look at what I'm struggling with. God can never change me. God can never use me like he does with these people. And I think once again, we come back to 2 Timothy 2.13, which reminds us, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God's going to stay faithful to us. God's going to continue to work in us. God's going to continue to change us, even when we choose to be faithful, even when we struggle, even when we make foolish decisions like Abraham did time and time again. God's not going to abandon us. He's not going to give up on us. He's going to continue to work in us and help us to change. You know, God not only wants us to change, but he also has the ability to help us to change. And that's huge because, you know, it could be like, well, I'm glad that God wants me to change, but he just can't change me. Well, yes, he can. He can change anybody. He can take the most wretched sinners and make them the most useful to his kingdom. The Saul who turned into Paul is a great example of that. And so don't fall for the lie that the enemy wants us to believe that, you know what, I can never become 
more like Jesus. I can never change. I can never be like these different characters in Scripture. Yes, we can. Because it's not a matter of those people. It's a matter of the God that they serve who's great enough to change lives. So now Abraham has passed away, and let's see what happens in verse 9. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. Then there Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Leroy. Notice who comes to bury Abraham. Two men, for all that we know, who haven't seen each other for quite a long time. We have Isaac and Ishmael coming together to bury their father. And this isn't something that you would think wouldn't happen. You would think it would happen. But yet, the last time we see Ishmael is he's making fun of Isaac and he's sent away. And so for our knowledge, he hasn't come back. There's been no interaction with them. Uh, Isaac now would be 75, Ishmael would be 89, so quite a long time has transpired since that took place. But we see here the burying of their father brought them together, hopefully that relationship that was probably um, torn uh, is brought together, and they come and they bury their father. But notice where they bury him. They bury him in the cave of Machpelah. Remember, that's the one thing of all the promised land, Abraham only owned one thing, and it was this cave, which he buried his wife in, and now he is going to be buried in, and we're going to see several other people in his lineage as we go through Genesis are also going to be buried there as well. But then we come to verse 11, and we're told, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. Now this is another one of those things where God is faithful, because you know, Abraham, he's doing all he can. He gives all the inheritance to Isaac. He sends his other sons away from the promised land. But at the end of the day, he's got to trust that God is going to fulfill what he said. Because once I'm gone, I can't be here for my son anymore. I can't help him anymore. I can't give him anymore. I got to trust that God is going to do what he said and provide for him and bless him and make him a great nation. And so he's trusting in that. And we see, once again, God is faithful to keep his... Now that Abraham has passed away, the blessing of God is now upon his son, Isaac. And so we have Isaac and we have Ishmael. They come together to bury their father. And now we're going to see a genealogy with both of these men, starting with Ishmael. Verse 12 says this. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generation. The firstborn of Ishmael, uh, Nebajoth, then Kadar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadan, Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedemah. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to the nations." These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go towards Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. So Ishmael lives to an old age. He's 137 years old before he dies, but he gets a wife, and he has 12 sons. 
And there's something interesting in this genealogy where normally, especially the genealogies of people who are not in the line of Christ, we just have names and we move on. But we're given something specific about these sons. We're told that they became, well, first that they started their own towns, and then they became princes in these towns. And so we have seven, or 12, sorry, princes with their own nations. And the reason this is interesting, and the reason that it's noted for us, is because it fulfills the promise that God had given to Abraham. If you remember when Sarah doesn't want Ishmael and Hagar anymore because Ishmael makes fun of Isaac, and she says, send him away. And Abraham's thinking, I'm not sending my son away. And then God comes to him and says, no, you need to listen to your wife. You need to send them away. And as Abraham's struggling to send his son away because he loves his son, God gives him a promise for Ishmael, a promise that we're going to see right here. Genesis chapter 17, verse 20. He says this to Abraham. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. Notice God doesn't just say, Ishmael's going to have 12 sons. I'm going to bless him. He's going to have 12 sons. It's going to be great. Because 12 sons is a lot of sons. And so that would make him quite fruitful in that regard. But he says something more specific. I'm going to give him 12 princes. Not just sons, princes. These are going to rule in different areas. And that's exactly what we're told happens with Ishmael's descendants, which once again we see that through this genealogy, the faithfulness of God. He's faithful to Abraham. Abraham, I know you don't want to send Ishmael away, but you know what? I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to bless him. I'm not only going to give him 12 sons, but these are going to be 12 princes. They're going to rule, and I'm going to take care of Ishmael for you. And so God is faithful once again to do what he said he would do. Now, interestingly, when you look at genealogies in Scripture, it always starts with the line that is not of Christ. The really, the one that the Bible wants us to focus on, the one it gives us details on, are the ones that are ultimately going to lead to Jesus. So anyone that doesn't lead to Jesus, they give us a little history in the sense of, here they are, here's their kids, and then we don't talk about him anymore. That's Ishmael. Here he is, here's his kids, we're not going to hear about him anymore. Now we move to Isaac, who is in the line of Christ, and so Isaac's genealogy is detailed. You know, we start with the genealogy of Isaac, and then it goes into this whole story about his life. And so... This is the person that the Spirit of God wants us to look into more because he's part of the genealogy that leads us to Jesus Christ. And so, verse 19, we start the genealogy of Isaac, but really it's the start of telling us more of the story of his life. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Last chapter, we saw the wonderful account of God bringing uh, Rebecca to Isaac and the bride and all the pictures that it speaks of the Holy Spirit and drawing us. And so Isaac's 40 years old. He gets his bride, Rebecca. They marry. It's a great thing. But they have a problem. The same problem that Abraham and Sarah had. They can't have kids. 
And for the same reason that Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids, Rebecca is barren. And so they're faced with this problem. And we remember what Abraham and Sarah did. They were faced with the problem. We don't see them crying out to the Lord. We see them trying to help God out in the flesh. We see them doing a lot of things that weren't really helpful. Well, now Isaac and Rebecca, they have the same issue. There's a barrenness that's taking place. How are they going to respond? What are they going to do with that? And that's really the most important point of what we see here. We're told in verse 21, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now when you first read this, it seems like they just got married. They're trying to have a child. They find out Rebekah's barren. Isaac prays, and she has a kid, and it's all great. But in verse 26, we're going to find out Isaac is 60 years old when Rebekah finally has children. He was 40 when they got married. So there's a 20-year span of time that she's barren. And so when this is speaking of this, it's not saying like, oh, he just found out and he prayed and all of a sudden God answered. This is something that we're told he pleaded with the Lord. She's barren, and he comes before the Lord for years Lord, please open the womb of my wife. We want to have children. But notice he doesn't try to help God out in the flesh. Notice he doesn't do all the other silly things that Abraham and Sarah did. He just comes and he prays and he realizes God can do this. And he would understand better than most because he's the miracle child himself. He knew, hey, my mom was 90 and my dad was 100 when they had me. So I know that God can do this. I know that God can make my wife have a child, and so he is praying for years. And we're told that when Isaac pleaded with her, finally the Lord answers this prayer. And he allows Rebekah to get pregnant. But notice in verse 22, we're told Rebekah now has a problem. She knows there's something wrong with her pregnancy. She's never been pregnant before, but she knows something inside me doesn't feel right. There's a struggle happening I know there's something wrong, and if all is well, she says, why am I like this? If everything's going good, I wouldn't be feeling like this. There's obviously something wrong, and once again, she's faced with, okay, there's this problem. What am I going to do? Who am I going to come to? Who am I going to seek help from? And notice what she does. Right away, she brings it before the Lord. She inquires of the Lord. Well, what's going on? Why am I feeling like this? Well, what's happened to me? And God responds to her and tells her in verse 23, maybe something that she didn't really want to know, but two nations are in your womb. What? Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Well, the reason that you're feeling weird, you got twins, and they're battling with one another. And it's actually a representation of two nations. You're going to have Jacob, who's going to be the nation of Israel, and you're going to have Esau, which is going to be the nation of Edom. Um, but they're having this war within you, and I'm sure that wasn't the most pleasant news for a, a first-time mom, but you know, God answers her request. He tells her what's going on inside of her, but he also tells her something very unique. The younger is going to be the one that ultimately is in a position of authority because the older one is going to serve the younger. Now, in that culture, that was backwards. The firstborn was always the one who got the greatest inheritance. The firstborn was the one who took the uh, leadership in the home, especially when the father died. It was the children after the firstborn that served the firstborn. 
It was never reversed. And so God's saying, hey, I'm going to reverse this. It's going to be your younger son that's actually going to take on that role, and the older son is going to serve the younger. So she's told this before her children are born, and that's going to be an important thing as we look at Jacob and Esau's um, life. Um, but So they're both faced with problems, big problems, and both of them respond with prayer. Both of them bring it to the Lord. Isaac comes, and I'm for years, pleads, hey, please, Lord, enable my wife to have children. God finally answers that. When Rebecca conceives, she's got something going on. She doesn't know what it is. She comes to the Lord, please tell me what's happening with me. He reveals what's taking place. You're going to have twins and all that goes with it. Um, and, you know, how they deal with their problem is a great example to us. You know, so much of Abraham and Sarah's life was a poor example. This is what you shouldn't do. This isn't how you should respond. And here we see Isaac and Rebekah, and this is a great example to us of when we face problems, this is a wonderful thing to do. Come to the Lord in prayer and seek him for his help. God knows all, and he's all-powerful, and he and he alone can get us through any situation, any struggle, any difficulty that we're facing. You know, too often when we are in a difficult situation, our first response is not to pray. We respond, for sure, but we have a lot of responses, most of which are not helpful to us, most of which cause more problems to us, most of which are not even biblical. We can pout, we can complain, we can whine, we can tell everybody else about our difficult situation, like Abraham and Sarah. We could try to fix it ourselves. And then when all else fails, we oftentimes come to God in prayer. But you know what? We can save ourselves a lot of headache. We can save ourselves a lot of heartache if God's the first one that we come to. Instead of doing all that other stuff, if we just come to the Lord, plead with Him, bring our request to Him, recognizing He's the one who can truly help us anyway, that's the best thing we can do when we encounter difficult situations. And one of the biggest reasons for why we should pray is because God answers prayers. It took a while, but God answers the prayer of Isaac. He answers the prayer of Rebekah. Uh, and this is a wonderful thing. God wants us to come to him in prayer and believe that he can meet our needs. You know, the ability to talk to the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth, the one who can actually do what we need in the situations we find ourselves in, is one of the greatest privileges we have as believer is unfortunately also one of the most neglected privileges we have. So the second thing I want you to take note of here in chapter 25 is when we face problems, we need to be persistent in prayer, trusting God to meet our needs. The reality is every day we face problems. I mean, there's not one day that goes by that there's not something that we could come to the Lord for prayer. And if it's not in your life, I'm sure it's in someone else's life. And so there's really no reason, there's no day we can go through and say, you know what, I really didn't have any reason to pray today. Every day there's a reason to pray, and every day we should take advantage of the wonderful privilege of prayer. Max Lucado said this about prayer, Our prayers may be awkward, our attempts may be feeble, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayers do make a difference. The thing that makes our prayer powerful is not us. It's the one we pray to. You know, throughout the scriptures, you see people praying to idols, and that's powerless prayer. 
because they're praying to things that don't exist. They're praying to things that have no power to change their circumstances, no power to help them whatsoever. And so it's a powerless prayer. And oftentimes you see people cutting themselves through Scripture and doing all this passionate plea, but they're praying to something that's never going to be able to answer. And so it's not that passion that ultimately gets the answer. It's praying to the right person, which is the true God of the Bible who has the power to answer and move. And even times when we are feeble in our prayers, and even times when maybe we don't even really believe that God can help, still we come to him, and because he is so powerful and able, that is what makes the prayer so powerful. Verse 24. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. After his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So now finally the day comes for Rebekah to have children. And notice we're told, indeed, there were twins in her womb. The reason we're told, indeed, there were twins in her womb is because God said you're going to have twins. And indeed, it happened. This is reminding us, once again, God did what he said he would do. He told you, you're going to have twins. Ah, Look, you had twins. Because God knows what he's talking about, and he was faithful to tell you the truth. Well, Rebecca has two boys, and we're given a little description of both of them. The first, we're told, comes out red and was a like a hairy garment all over. So this would have been a very interesting child. He's red-skinned, and he's super hairy. And I'm sure that we probably would have lied and said, oh, what a cute baby to the parent. But deep down inside, we would have thought, That's not a cute baby, but he's full of hair, and he's all red, and so they name him Esau, which is a fitting name because the name Esau means hairy. So while Esau is being born, the second child reaches out and grabs hold of Esau's heel. And as the parents see this happen, they think, well, we got a good name for the second child. We're going to name him Jacob, and the name Jacob means heel catcher. Now, the idea of a heel catcher is not a really nice name, but, you know, it just describes what he did. The word means a a trickster or a con man. And we're going to see that Jacob, unfortunately, lives up to his name um, for the next portion of his life and many things that he does. Well, now we're going to learn a little more about these boys. We don't know much about their childhood. We just know about their birth, and we're going to jump straight to their adulthood And we're going to be told a couple of important descriptions about them in verses 27 and 28. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So when Jacob and Esau, they grow up. And we're told a couple things about each one of them. First, we're told Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the field. So Esau, he's an outdoors man. He's a manly man. He's a hunting man, and he's skillful at it. He's good at hunting, and and he spends most of his time outdoors doing that. Jacob is really kind of the, the opposite of Esau. We're told that he was a mild man who dwelt in tents. And so Esau is an outdoors guy. Jacob, he likes to be in the tents. He doesn't want to be sleeping under the stars and with the bugs. He'd rather be in the tents. But when we hear this word mild, we need to understand, you know, 
maybe some of the things that come into our mind are kind of weak or effeminate, and so Esau is this manly man, and Jacob's kind of this girly man, but that's not what the word mild means. Um, it's only translated mild once in Scripture. It's in the Scripture uh, 12 different times, but it's only mild once. I don't know why they translated mild, because that's not what it means. <coughs> Excuse me. It means quiet or blameless. So it's not speaking of an effeminate person. It's speaking more of a, a quiet-natured person or in a positive sense, like when speaking of Job, Job was used the same word. He was a blameless man in all he did. So they're both positive things. One's just speaking more of his quiet nature. The other's speaking of blamelessness. Most commentators or uh, translators have translated it quiet because they look at Abraham, um, Jacob's life and they don't think blameless is the best um, thing to describe him. But So they're different. Jacob and Esau, uh, and not only are they different, but they have a bigger problem. Their parents recognize their differences, and each parent likes one child more than the other. Notice what verse 28 says. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so here we have both parents seeing the difference in their boys and favorites. Isaac looks at Esau. Here's the man's man. He goes out there and hunts and he brings me back nice game. And I love what I get to eat from him. And he's my favorite. We're specifically told here he loves Esau. But now Rebecca has her favorite. She loves Jacob. We're not given the reason why. And maybe part of the reason why is because God told her, hey, the younger one, he's going to be the one that's going to be ruling. And it's going to be the older one that's going to be serving him. But we have this issue here in the home, and we're going to see that even Rebecca, because of her favoritism towards her son Jacob, is going to deceive her own husband, and there's going to be some problems going on, and so we see this favoritism has some significant negative results that come from it, but um, whenever parents have favorites among children, you can always guarantee problems are going to arise. Problems will probably arise within the marriage, but definitely will arise among the siblings, because kids aren't stupid, and they quickly catch on to, oh, dad likes me most, or oh, mom likes me most. Um, growing up, my brother and I uh, were very different, and my dad, you know, he loved sports. He wanted a son that played sports. His favorite sport was basketball. He wanted a son that played basketball. My brother's not athletic at all. Uh, he's quite intelligent. He loved, you know, intellectual things, academics. He got all straight A's. But my dad didn't really care about that. Uh, I played a lot of sports. My brother's four years older than me, but we'd go out with my dad and we'd play basketball together, and I'd beat my brother, even though he's a lot older, and my dad would be so proud of that. And my brother always senses, you know, you don't care about my academic accomplishments, but you care about, you know, my brother's, you know, uh, athletic accomplishments. And it was clear that my dad preferred me over my brother, and, you know, there was just that reality because, hey, I was the boy who could do the things that he wanted, and my brother, he didn't really care about the um, intellectual side of things. And so, you know, there were problems. My brother and I fought a lot. My brother had a lot of issues towards me because my dad liked me and showed that more than him. Uh, we see this with coming to Jacob's going to have Joseph, and we know the story well. They favor Joseph. They give him a coat of many colors. And his brothers love him for it, and they treat him great. No, they want to kill him, and they sell him as a slave. It brings problems. And really, the cause of that is Jacob and his wife showing favoritism to one over the others. And here we see problems here of favoritism with Esau, favoritism with Jacob. And it brings issues 
for the kids, all to say, as parents, this is not something that is good for us to do. And, you know, favoritism can take all sorts of different, you know, um, can be in things like social class or race or wealth or what someone wears or what they look like. It's not just parents towards children. I mean, just go to a school at lunchtime and you will see everybody divided into their different groups based on who they favor. You know, it's just the way in which people are. You are in my group and I'll be with you, but I'm not going to talk to any of you. Uh, it's kind of how our culture is. But unfortunately, we sometimes bring that into the church. And so people come into the church and they don't feel welcome, they don't feel loved, they feel like, well, there's this group that people really like, but they don't really like me, and and there's obvious favorites here and there, but yet I'm not really welcomed, I'm not really loved in the same way that other people are. The Bible makes very clear favoritism or showing partiality to someone is a sin. James chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. We should be showing love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat everyone equally. Show them all love. And James is saying, if you do that, great. You're fulfilling that. But if you're showing partiality, showing favoritism to different ones, you're in sin. That's not something that you should be doing. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 tells us, for there is no partiality with God. God is not one who shows favorites. We looked at that in Romans chapter 2. The Jews thought he's going to show favoritism to us and not the Gentiles, but God doesn't. There's no partiality with him. He doesn't show favoritism, and neither should we as his children do that as well. So the third thing I want us to take note of here from chapter 25 is don't show favoritism. Instead, love your neighbor as yourself. When we don't do this, as we're going to see in Isaac and Rebecca and their families' lives, lots of problems occur. And so loving people the way that the Bible says is so much better than the favoritism that we so often do. Well, now this chapter is going to finish with a very important encounter with Jacob and Esau. And this encounter is going to reveal a lot about both of these men, and it's going to reveal negative things in both of their life. Verse 29 says this, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And and Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthrights as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthrights. Now remember, Jacob was the quiet man who liked to stay at home in the tent, and and Esau was the the man who liked to go out and hunt and be outdoors. And so one day Jacob's at home, and he's cooking, and Esau comes in, obviously from a day in the field, and he probably didn't kill anything, or at least there was nothing to eat, and he's weary. And Esau asked Jacob to feed him some of the stew that Jacob had cooked. Now as a loving brother, he would just say, sure, You've been out all day for however long, you're hungry, you're weary, here's some of this stew that I've made, but that's not what Jacob says. He says, oh, you want my stew? 
give me your birthright, and you can have as much as you want. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, we need to understand what the birthright was and why Jacob wanted it. The birthright involved both a material and a spiritual dynamic. The firstborn son would receive a double portion of the inheritance. So there was definitely a material aspect. If you're firstborn, you get double all the other children. What Abraham did was actually abnormal, where he pretty much gave all of it to Isaac and just gave gifts to the rest. Normally, you would just give double the portion to the oldest, and then the the rest of them would get an even portion after that. But not only is it a material thing, it was also a spiritual dynamic. Because if you are the firstborn, part of the birthright was you are going to take the spiritual head of the home. When dad dies, you take that role. That's the role of the firstborn to step in and to do that. And so not only are you going to gain a greater inheritance uh, financially, but you're also gain a greater responsibility within the spiritual leadership of the home. I believe that Jacob wasn't just interested in getting the material blessing. He, he also wanted to have this headship because I'm sure his mother told him the reality that, hey, Esau is going to serve you. God has chosen you to lead and be the head of this home. But Esau responds to Jacob's request by saying, I'm about to die. What is this birthright to me? Now, I don't believe that Esau was literally starving to death and about to die, and if he didn't eat the stew, he was done. You know, many times in our marriage, I've been hungry, and I said, Jenny, when is dinner? I'm starving to death. I didn't really mean I'm starving to death. I'm just hungry, and I would like some food. And obviously, you know, Esau's coming in. And and remember, Isaac got everything that Abraham had. Abraham had a lot. There's no way in Isaac's home there wasn't something for Esau to eat to survive. And so there was just nothing made. And so he's there, and he's like, all right, there's a stew made. It's ready to be eaten. I'm hungry. Let me have it. So when he says this, he's not really speaking about the fact that he's going to die. It's just like, oh, what do I care? And this is part of the problem of Esau. He didn't really care about his birthright. And more specifically, he didn't really care about the responsibility of his birthright, which is, I am going to now be the spiritual head of the home when Isaac dies. And this is something we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. Lest there be any foreigner or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. The Bible does not speak well of what Esau did. It's not like, oh, it's okay, who cares that he did it? No, it is very negative thing that he was willing to give up such a wonderful privilege, not only financially, but spiritually, to just say, ah, oh, you can have it, you know, for a bowl of stew. Esau cared more about satisfying his flesh than he did about holding on to the birthright and the spiritual leadership that was his. And I think this is a very important warning for us. Because we get saved, and there are roles that we are given because we are now followers of Jesus. There's titles that the Bible says that we have that oftentimes, you know, maybe we don't even realize how big of a responsibility it is, but we're told that we're ambassadors for Christ. That means our job is to represent Jesus Christ here in this world. We are the light of the world. We live in a dark place, and we're supposed to shine bright for Jesus. We're supposed to be the salt of the earth. There's these descriptions that we're given, ultimately all of them saying, hey, we should be representing Jesus to the world around us who doesn't know him. We should be 
spiritual leaders. We should be demonstrating these truths to the world that desperately needs to see it. But you know what? Sometimes like Esau, we choose to sacrifice that role to satisfy our flesh. I'm supposed to be this spiritual leader. I'm supposed to be this ambassador for Christ. I'm supposed to be representing Jesus to people around me. But you know what? Forget that. Forget what kind of representation I'll be. Forget what they'll think if I do this. I want to fulfill my flesh right now. I want to indulge my flesh. And ultimately, I'm going to give up the spiritual role and the impact it will make in order just to get this gratification right now. And all of us are guilty of it. All of us have done it. And the sad reality is oftentimes we don't see the kind of impact negatively that it makes on those that are in our life, those that are in our family, those that are just seeing the way in which we compromise ourselves in our Christian faith. Sometimes it gets even more extreme. I know pastors who have chosen to trade the spiritual role that they were given, not only in the church, but in their home, in the community, to sleep with someone who wasn't their wife, and it destroyed the spiritual role they had in the church. It destroyed the spiritual role they had in their home. It destroyed their witness among the world. And the fallout from those types of choices are devastating. You know, as I've pastored for many years, I've counseled people who've done things like this, and never once has someone who's done this and and looked back on it said, man, if I had it to do again, I would surely indulge in that once more. If I had it to do again, I would give in to that again. If I had it to do again, it was so worth it. It's always the opposite. I was so stupid. If I had it to do again, I wouldn't choose that. I wouldn't go down that road. The consequences were far more severe than I ever thought possible. Whenever we choose to deny our role as ambassadors for Christ in order to fulfill our flesh, not only do we bring problems to ourselves, but it impacts so many more people. Our sin never just impacts us. That's a lie the enemy wants us to believe. Oh, no one else is going to get hurt. That's not true. Our actions influence others in a negative way or a positive way, depending on what we're doing. The fourth thing I want you to take note of here in chapter 25 is don't sacrifice your spiritual role in Christ to indulge your flesh. It isn't worth it. You know, it's interesting. We're going to see in chapter 27 right now, Esau thinks it's worth it. Oh, I'm hungry. Just give me some stew. What do I care about this birthright? 27, he's going to weep. He's going to realize what an idiot I was to give that up for stew. What was I thinking? He doesn't get it back. And that's so often us, you know, we think, oh, it's worth it right now. But give it some time. The Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season, but then we really reap the consequences of it and we realize it was a bad trade that we wish we never did. Well, Jacob here is obviously not doing something good. He's acting like the meaning of his name, heel catcher, deceiver, trickster. Ultimately, what he does here is he falls into the same trap as his grandfather, Abraham. You know what? Let's help God out in our flesh. That's the problem that Abraham often had. He did it in Egypt when he says, you know, say you're my sister instead of you're my wife. I'll protect myself. 
Or, you know what, let's sleep with Hagar because we can just have a child through her. You know, both of those things were, let's help God in my own flesh, my own power, my own strength to accomplish what God promised for me. Remember, God promised Rebecca, your son Jacob is ultimately going to be the head of this family. It's going to be Esau who's going to serve him. He didn't need to steal this birthright. It was already his. God was going to give it to him. God was going to give him this role, this headship, this leadership. Esau was going to serve him. This wasn't something that he had to try to take in his own strength, in his own conniving way. It was something that God would have blessed him with because God had already promised him it was his. Just like with Abraham, I promise I'm going to give you and Sarah a child. Uh, Well, you know what? How about we just make a child ourselves with Hagar? Well, this is what Jacob's doing. You know what? I'll just get my birthright myself. You know, I see a perfect opportunity here. Here's my brother. He's super hungry. I have this stew. You want some? Give me the birthright. You can have as much as you want. So he's falling into this same trap, thinking I need to help God out in the flesh, which he definitely didn't need to do. The fifth thing I want you to take note of here in chapter 25 is God is completely faithful to fulfill his promises without our fleshly help. Throughout this chapter, we see a theme, something that's coming up over and over again, the faithfulness of God in the genealogies and all these things that we're seeing come to pass in people's lives. God said it would happen, and then we see it does happen. We see his faithfulness to accomplish it. And I think we need to realize when God promises something, he doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us in our own flesh to try to make it happen for him. We need to trust, hey, if God says he'll do it, he's going to do it. Abraham fell for this. Jacob fell for this. I know I have fallen for this. I'm sure you have as well. Oh, Lord, you need me and my flesh and my strength and my power to make this happen on your behalf. And it doesn't make it happen. It just gives us all sorts of problems. But on the other side of the coin, God does want to work with us. And he does want to work in us. He doesn't want us trying in our own strength and our own flesh, but he says, you know what? I have this promise for you. I have this plan for you. And I love to work with you. I love to work in you. But you have to give me that permission. You have to work with me. I want to do this together. Don't try to do it on your own, in your own strength. Do it with me. Because I want to have you be a part of this. We saw this at the latter point of Abraham's life when he started to realize, oh, wow, yeah, if I rely on the Lord and trust in the Lord and have faith in the Lord, he can do great things in and through me. And it's going to take a while, but Jacob's going to get there as well. And so for us, hopefully we can learn from the mistakes of others to realize, you know what? God wants to work with us. He doesn't want us to do it on our own and our own strength and thinking that we got to accomplish it for him. So in this chapter, we have five great challenges. First, God is faithful, even when we're faithless, and he wants to change us to become faithful and obedient to him. Second, when we face problems, we need to be persistent in prayer, trusting God to meet our needs. Third, don't show favoritism. Instead, love your neighbor as yourself. Fourth, don't sacrifice your spiritual role in Christ to indulge your flesh. It isn't worth it. And fifth, God is completely faithful to fulfill his promises without our fleshly help. So now we're going to move in. We're going to see Abraham's done. So the focus is Isaac. And Isaac really doesn't last too long. Really, the focus is going to transition quite quickly into Jacob, who's going to have a a significant portion 
of the scriptures like Abraham did as well. So any thoughts on what we looked at tonight?